Hi everyone, it's Kasha here. Before we get started on today's episode, we just wanted to give a warning that we discuss the mental health crisis and mental health issues such as depression, and some listeners may find this distressing. If these are subjects that you find challenging, you may want to switch off and join us next week instead. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of Cursed Objects. My name's Dan Hancocks. And I'm Dr. Kasha T. And today we are going to be entertaining you with a conversation about some very strange postcards which I bought just before Christmas. They are labour, self-care, colouring in, promotional fundraising postcards, which is not snappy, I appreciate. And they... (laughs) Uh, sort of A5 in size. I realise now I should have posted one to you for Christmas, Kasha. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, I'm quite gutted, actually. I'm feeling a little bit betrayed, I have to say. Like, I haven't even coloured them in yet, which is probably why I'm feeling so stressed. <laughs> like, need to do some self-care. I really love the idea of, like, you trying really hard to, like, colour one of these in, but, but just being really stressed and being like, shit, I'm out of the line. I mean, colouring in does sound quite stressful in itself. To me, but um, but that's because I'm shit at it, probably. I don't know, maybe I need more practice. <laughs> um, I'm going to try and describe these, as we always do on Cursed Objects, in some detail. So there are three A5 cardboard postcards. So quite large, larger than usual postcard size. And they, they have three different designs on. And the first one has, like, an array of sort of diverse-looking figures, I think it's fair to say. Like, there's at least there's a woman in a headscarf... Even though these are outlines, you can sort of tell it's sort of trying to emphasise that the Labour Party is a multicultural party. And it says the Labour Party in big letters across the top. It says solidarity, tolerance and respect underneath. Um, And then there's another slogan, which is a sort of key Labour Party tenet, which is by the strength of our common endeavour, we achieve more than we achieve alone. Which is interesting, actually, because a lot of what we're going to talk about today is exactly that. <laughs> mm. um, and in a sense, we are in agreement, I think, probably. We're going we're gonna to end up realising with that statement, but we're going to find that the very existence of these postcards is sort of a, a big throw to individualism and against the sort of collectivism that you would expect to be at the core of the Labour movement and the core of the Labour Party. But yeah, I'll just describe the other two for you as well. You've got um, the second one is a thank you key workers postcard, um, which is obviously very of the moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if they would have produced similar postcards if there hadn't been a pandemic. Interesting thing to wonder. But um, they, the people, the key workers pictured are all wearing masks and they include a bus driver which I, you can tell because it says bus driver on her jumper. <laughs> Quite hard. I mean, to, to be fair to the actual illustrator, and I don't know who it is because their name is not credited, they've done a quite difficult job here quite well, like mm. portraying someone's uh, occupation purely through through a line drawing. It's not, not that easy. But yeah, there's a doctor, there's a nurse. There is what looks like a grocer wearing what I'm guessing is a, a grocer's hat. Is that a thing? It's like a really wide-brimmed <laughs> hat. But yeah, anyway, she's holding a big box of vegetables. There's some. There's someone in the back who's just wearing a hat, and I'm like, well, what 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 job do you do? What kind of key worker? I mean, there are obviously many types of key worker, but some of them are fairly anonymous. And then at the front, in pride of place, is the police officer. Lovely. Which um, is obviously, you know, I'm sure any anarchist leaning friends will immediately sort of leap in and be like, oh yeah, well, the, what's the big surprise about that? Labour Party has always been the party of cops. <laughs> Which, you know, is sort of broadly true. And even under Corbyn, you know, icons of the Labour left, like uh, Jeremy Corbyn and Diane Abbott, have said some very, very pro-police things at some points and some quite critical things at others. Mm. People can select their own particular statements, pronouncements or incidents to support their theory that, you know, Labour Party is a cop party or actually that, they, you know, they've been 
have actually been very good and progressive in difficult circumstances on 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 you know police violence and racism and so forth. The Labour Party, the the party of law and order, right? right absolutely. Yeah. I'm so surprised they don't have that on one of the on one of the postcards. I mean, I suppose this is so. The key thing is we get get into this, but this is, these are targeted at members, not at voters, and there is always a yeah. quite an interesting and striking difference between the conversations that the Labour Party has directly to its members mm. its fee paying members i think maybe some people don't know this but like you do have to pay to be a member of a labor of a, of a political party in this country mm. you know it's not that, like in, in the states to be a registered democrat or republican voter that's very different actually to being a party member for example mm. uh h- here it is largely it's about participation ideally but at the very least as far as the party bureaucracy is concerned they're not so bothered about participation and more bothered about you chipping in with your monthly sum essentially mm. but yeah the uh the appearance of the cop at the front of this labor party promotional fundraising coloring in postcard thing it's sort of timely given in a sense given that Keir Starmer in his sort of year or so as leader of the labor party has been increasingly pushing towards a more sort of what, what is known as blue labor principles mm. blue, blue labor is a tradition within the labor party which emphasizes community sure but also mm-hmm. um things like you know patriot like more socially conservative values mm. sometimes sometimes ascribed from the outside as faith family and flag which is to be fair not some a sentence that i think Keir Starmer himself has has uttered <laughs> sure i think he's an, uh, an atheist but um but it's sort of what critics of that blue labor tradition would would describe it as faith family flag it's actually mm. also the a line from sarah palin's like that's the subtitle of her autobiography, apparently, <laughs> and uh, has certain shades of the of the Nazi slogan "Kinder Kuch Kirsch," which is, <laughs> I think, uh, which was uh, what's that? Children, kitchen, and church, which is what women are supposed to be doing. Anyway, basically, don't have a three word slogan where, every, where which is alliterative because it sounds fresh. That's that's, my, that's uh, your hot take on that. Yeah, yeah. Podcast done. Yeah. We're out. <laughs> I guess it's kind of interesting, like, it's just as you were saying that, it did kind of strike a chord with me because we do have to look at the ways in which these parties are funded. And if you look at the private donations, the Labour Party, they are, like, relatively skin in comparison to, like, Conservative mm. donations. If you're looking at, like, billionaires, the amount mm. of people that, mm-hmm. could, like, donate to the Conservative Party is substantially more than the Labour Party. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and also, like, this has changed significantly for the Labour Party in the last year or so because, mm. Labour, you know, the Labour Party have always accrued a lot more money, well, for, partly from mm. unions, union, do, you know, the the sort of block union donations, which are crucial uh, and substantial. Mm. They go some way to offsetting those billionaire dodgy donors to the Conservative Party, but not that far. And what's crucial is that they have a mass membership under Tony Blair and New Labour, the Labour Party's membership declined massively. Mm. And under Corbyn, it, I think, quadrupled. Wow. Like, it, it was above 500,000, became the largest party in, political party in Europe. And that's, you know, that's part of, I think, you know, that's that's not only significant from a funding point of view or from a, you know, mm. point of view of indicating a, like a, a mass wave of enthusiasm for actual participation, I know critics of, of Corbyn will point out that they were absolutely slammed in the 2019 election. It's very true. But, you know, unprecedented to have this mass party as an engine. And it, it had more than a financial effect. It mm. generated some of these mass rallies. And actually the third pod, uh, postcard, which I, I have not yet described, um, depicts a rally. It depicts a Labour rally with loads of hands in the air. And, that you know, that was a real hallmark of the Corbyn era. It was something that was actually very heavily criticised during the 2017 election as a sort of self-glorifying thing, a personality cult thing. Why They kept saying, you know, mainstream critic, media critics kept saying, why is Corbyn having these massive rallies in safe Labour seats? This is absolutely mm. deranged. It shows it's just about... Um, you know, a self, yeah, self-congratulatory sort of personality cult, and not about winning over hearts and minds, not Labour voters. <laughs> now, there's a very strong case that that's absolute bollocks. That actually, it was a genius strategy, and that because having these huge rallies in front of like ten thousand people in a safe Labour seat in you know Liverpool, say, or Manchester. They were then, these rallies were big enough events. Sure, so they were only attended by the faithful, probably. Mm. But A, those faithful go back to their homes 
and tell people about what a great event it was. They're motivational. They help, they help, you know, get that mess membership working and energize them to go out and knock on doors. That's mm. one thing. The second thing is they were reported on the regional news. And this is something that like London based media people did not think about. Like if you're doing a huge rally at the Manchester city stadium, uh, or, or the Nottingham Forest Stadium, say, then the the entire regional kind of subsection of the BBC and, the, and ITV mm. broadcast that, and that goes to the non-safe seats, to the target seats as well, and people who are in those target seats see on the... And yeah, for this sure. This is a subject for another episode, I'm sure, but, like, TV news remains really important to how a lot of people get their political... get their, get their news and therefore make their political decisions, and it's, you know, really... Things, things like Twitter are important, but they're really actually probably not as important as a lot of old old forms of media. Yeah. But I think what's happening here is a really interesting way in which political parties are kind of making use of quite a lot of the discourse around mental health and like the new ways of approaching mental health and mindfulness. Because even though me and you mm. see colouring in as really stressful, there is a huge yeah. trend about like colouring in books. So I think what's really interesting is, is the way that the postcards that you're talking about really capitalise yeah. on a very particular moment where uh, mental health mm. is, is more widely discussed, but is also kind of, there are these kind of solutions perhaps quite quick fix solutions or perhaps kind of like a nod to the mental health crisis, which are, why don't you colour in this postcard and then maybe you won't feel so sad <laughs> about everything else. And I just want to justify the connection that we're making between the existence of these postcards and them actually being sort of, you know, self-care, uh, mindfulness related and read from the email, the promotional email that went out asking for for donations in inverted commas you're effectively i spent eight quid on these bloody things most expensive <laughs> postcards ever so the the email went out to Labour party members in november last year and reads the holiday season is creeping up up on us again with things so different this year we've decided to gift all our campaign donors these limited edition postcard prints for you to color in at home with a little pack of coloring pencils i didn't get any coloring pencils you got robbed wait where Austerity, austerity, Kasha. They've you got absolutely done, mate. <laughs> yeah, unbelievable. Uh, but yeah, cont- it says containing several classic designs. These packs are perfect for a quiet, mindful moment with a cup of tea, or gift them to a friend or family member in the spirit of self-care as something special for the holiday season. So yeah, that I mean that you know I just wanted to make it clear that we are justified in discussing these as self-proclaimed self-care mindful activities by the Labour Party and as you say this moment this sort of this last few years really we have seen a complete transformation in the public conversation about mental health it wasn't that long ago that the sun was putting very unwell Frank Bruno the boxer on on its cover with highly like derogatory, like piss takey mm. headlines, you know, and and, and I just, it's the sort of thing that just wouldn't happen now. You know, I, back pre pandemic when I'd go to football matches, there, you know, there was a there was a whole, I think possibly even a whole season, certainly several games where my football team AFC Wimbledon were wearing shirts as sort of basically every prem, every club in the football league, all ninety two clubs, I think, signed up to this scheme, which I think was calm. The campaign mm. against living miserably uh, produced, or possibly Mind, uh, another major mental health uh, sort of organisation, um, to promote sort of you know better mental health. And mm. you've got spokespeople from footballers to pop stars sort of pouring their guts out about their own mental health problems. And 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 yeah, this this is something that is clearly being tapped into here in this by this somewhat infantilized sort of activity. Uh, as a fundraising tool for for the Labour Party, I mean, I think I think I probably need to say here sort of what it is that's cursed about it more explicitly. Like, why, what is the what is the Labour Party's role in this? It would be fair in on one one level to just say, well, this is just quite cute. Chill out, guys. Yeah, man, it's all a bit of fun. It's all a bit of a nod to the fact that we're all having a tough time. Exactly, it's a bit of fun. But I think it is a polit- it's a it's a particularly cursed kind of combination of things here, and it's a politically cursed combination. And um, that the political party, which contains the promise of solidarity and workers' emancip- emancipation, should use self care and mindfulness colouring in to raise money for itself. It's because it suggests that like the shifting of responsibility for your own happiness and sound mental health 
or indeed your survival, in fact, is on your shoulders. It's on the shoulders of the individual, mm. uh, which sort of further isolates you from your peers, from your community, and heightens the sense of, through heightening the sense of personal responsibility through, for, for sound mental health, you are essentially suggesting that there's you know, a, a sense of guilt if you can't control it, if you can't conquer depression, mm-hmm. anxiety, whatever other mental health challenges you may face in your life, then, then you know, you've done something wrong. There's this sense that, like, the colouring mm-hmm. in pen is mightier than the sword or mightier than, like, state support, basically. That collectivity mm-hmm. is an impossible dream or maybe a historic one, and it's on you to take care of it. And if you'll bear with me, I'd like to read from a really quite famous piece actually by Mark Fisher, the late Mark Fisher, called The The Privatisation of Stress, which was published in 2012 in Soundings Journal. I mean, I say it's famous. It's famous among people I know. I don't don't know how many people (laughs) have actually read it. It's a fucking great essay. It's online, free to read. Go just Google it. Uh, Or in fact, don't Google it. Go to our Patreon and you'll find all of the links which help flesh out some of these ideas even more articulately, if that's possible, than we have. So I'm just going to read a bit from, from a section called Public Renewal or Private Cure? Question mark. Mark Fisher writes, The privatisation of stress is a perfect capture system, elegant in its brutal efficiency. Capital makes the worker ill, and then multinational pharmaceutical companies sell them drugs to make them better. The social and political causation of distress is neatly sidestepped at the same time as discontent is individualised and interiorised. Dan Hind has argued that the focus on serotonin deficiency as a supposed cause of depression obfuscates some of the social roots of unhappiness, such as competitive individualism and income inequality. Though there is a large body of work that shows the links between individual happiness and political participation and extensive social ties, a public response to private distress is rarely considered as a first option. It is clearly easier to prescribe a drug than a wholesale change in the way society is organised. Instead, Mark Fisher writes, we have via medication and inward-looking forms of therapy a, quote, self-help doctrine that individuals can become masters of their own destiny. The radical therapist David Smale gives the immensely suggestive name magical voluntarism. I love this phrase, by the way, magical voluntarism. I've I've written about it myself before with regards to being self-employed. You know, that hustle, that grind, you know. So, Sorry, I'll return to the text. Mm. Radical therapist David Smale gives the immensely suggestive name magical voluntarism to the view that, quote, with the expert help of your therapist or counsellor, you can change the world you are in the last analysis responsible for so that it no longer causes you distress. The propagation of magical voluntarism has been crucial to the success of neoliberalism. We might go so far as to say as it constitutes something like the spontaneous ideology of our times. Thus, for example, ideas from self-help therapy have become very influential in popular television shows. The Oprah Winfrey Show is probably the best-known example, but in the UK, programmes such as Mary, Queen of Shops and The Fairy Jobmother explicitly promote magical voluntarism's psychic entrepreneurialism. So these programmes assure us that the fetters on our productive potentials lie within us. If we don't succeed, it's simply because we have not put the work in to reconstruct ourselves. Privatisation of stress has been part of a project that has aimed at an almost total destruction of the concept of the public, the very thing upon which psychic well-being fundamentally depends. What we urgently need is a new politics of mental health organised around the problem of public space. And I just want to add one little thing there before you come in and say that by public space, I think Mark means the public realm we like we don't need to mean literally public squares and parks though those are very important too in all sorts of ways including to our mental health i mean we've all learned how important parks are to our mental health in the last year um as the you know boggy muddy sort of state of them right now testifies what we mean by public space when he says you know we need to return to the public rather than this individualization this privatization space uh, of stress sorry what we mean is libraries, community centres, youth clubs, free cultural events, a rich, a rich and accessible cultural life, you know, more direct forms of democracy which support genuine engagement, whether it's the changes happening to our local area or sort of the way we're governed more generally. You know, that, 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 that is what has suffered under 40 years of 
neoliberalism and the that we have become atomized more and more obviously this corresponds this period corresponds with like the destruction of the fordist production mode of capitalism which is basically the the kind where most most people worked in larger organizations on a factory floor um in a a unionized workplace where you know collectivity was available through um through work and actually the fact that more and more of us like me are self-employed is 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 part of that kind of atomization you know and it's, it's it's weird talking about it this year when we've all been atomized you know like collectivity has been simultaneously available to us through mutual aid groups whatsapp groups zoom calls clapping on our balconies however cursory some of those things may be but ultimately we've all been quite fucking lonely you know Mm. (laughs) i think like i think the thing that's so interesting about that there are so many things but one of them is the ways that he's kind of getting at the idea that like and this is something that has happened to me and I think has happened to would have happened to so many of our listeners. Like you work for a company or an organization or a university and you're like, I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling depressed. And they're like, have you tried a meditation app? <laughs> have you tried coloring in a book? I hear they're really good. You can oh, get them on Amazon. Yeah. You know, and it and it and and rather than like critically looking at mental health provisions because they are expensive and they take a lot of time and or rather than looking at the structures by which so many people are so depressed and sad it's Mm. just like how about rather than everybody coming together to realize why they're so sad which is often like precarious job Mm -hmm. markets and like lack of support and lack Mm -hmm. of housing instead of looking at that stuff download a meditation app like (laughs) it's like oh have you tried yoga and it's just like Mm -hmm. i think that's just such a striking thing about what he's saying and i think uh, one of the things that like really jumps out at me is this kind of idea of of, de- of the neoliberal. And I think that neoliberalism is one of those things that is really frustrating in a way. I find it really frustrating because I have this like one friend and whenever I talk to them about neoliberalism, they're like, well, you know, can you define neoliberalism? Like, what do you mean? And recently, whenever they say it, I'm just like, I'm sorry, but I'm not actually doing this work for you anymore. Like, Yeah, how many times have they asked you (laughs) like honestly like quite a few times and i'm like i'm not gonna have this conversation with you anymore (laughs) to be fair to your friend there are a number of like leading political correspondents for major newspapers and tv stations in this country who wouldn't even ask the question they'd just be like lol that's not a thing yeah yeah it's become such a such a wearying part of the anti-intellectual sort of discourse we have in this country that basically any polysyllabic word is obviously bollocks yeah yeah it's it it reflects it reflects something very grim about the state of our of our political conversation that people in really prominent positions not just your mate but like people who Mm. it's literally their job to explain the political social uh, and economic world that we live in and they're like Oh, sounds a bit academic to me. Yeah. And it's so frustrating because it's like something which dominates so many conversations on the left. So it becomes one of these things where it's almost like has turned into a meme where it's like, oh, there's an angry lefty pointing at a rain cloud going, oh, it's because of neoliberalism. Do you know what I mean? And that's just not, it's just, that's just not what's happening here. It's such a pervasive, I think, like political and ideological model. So just like really briefly for anyone who's like, hmm, I wonder how we interrogate or how we think about neoliberalism. I... Well, in case, in case, in case any listeners are like, "Oh God, is Kasha going to make me do the work?" As yeah. well? but she's not. <laughs> Kasha's going to tell I, you. I'm going to do the work for you. <laughs> I mean, I've been because I've been thinking about this, and it's quite hard to make it snappy because, in a way, it's so pervasive. But I think some of the power of neoliberalism lies in the fact that it doesn't it doesn't make itself quite clear. It's so pervasive. It kind of uh, it's it has traces in so many different things. Well, it's like it's almost like it's too big. Yeah, like it blots out the sun because it's it because yeah. it's hedge because it's in everything it's actually harder to explain exactly exactly so um i think we can kind of think of it as an economic kind of driven ideology based on 
deregulation of capital markets and a reduction in like state intervention. So that basically means that it's a market mm -hmm. that is driven towards competition. It is a market driven towards the fact that like there are no caps on markets in terms of what things can be traded and how, but also that there is a reduction in like the states. So the state basically wants to have less control over things like the NHS. It wants to sell them off privately. But I think one of the things that's like really crucial about it is that it's so much more than just economics. It's something that infiltrates and like permeates into like absolutely every part of our life. So as the Guardian columnist George Monbiot noted, neoliberalism redefines citizens as consumers whose democratic choices are best exercised by buying and selling, a process that rewards merits and punishes inefficiency. It maintains that the market delivers benefits that could never be achieved by planning. Attempts to limit competition are treated as inimicable to liberty. Tax and regulation should be minimalised. Public services should be privatised. The organisation of labour and collective bargaining by trade unions are portrayed as market distortions that impede the formation of a natural hierarchy of winners and losers. Inequality is recast as virtuous, a reward for utility and a generator of wealth which trickles down to enrich everyone. Efforts to create a more equal society are both counterproductive and morally corrosive. The market ensures that everybody gets what they deserve. So just kind of reading that, I think it's like really clear and how that relates to mental health and what you were saying is that it becomes one of these things that, oh, you're sad, you're depressed, it's on you. <laughs> yeah. That's your fault. That's your fault that you're not virtuous. It's not the fault. It's your fault that you haven't downloaded the meditation app. It's your fault that you haven't bought enough coloring books. And it's always rotating around the idea of consumerism, of of, of buying, of buying and selling, essentially. Yeah. So, like, buy Cons this, it will make you happy. Consumer rather than citizen. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Like, there's a new, you know, it, it sometimes, like, you know, you, you might encounter if you're sort of delving into sort of the, the podcasts and kinds of articles that we recommend, references to the neoliberal subject or neoliberal subjectivity. And what that means is the, the individual person under neoliberalism is essentially changing. You know, like we are different people to to the people that we used to be as individuals mm -hmm. because of the political economy, because of the, you know, the political culture and the economic culture around us. And that culture is neoliberalism and the neoliberal subject is one that is more atomized than ever and is indeed told to. And, well, and indeed, like, you know, reports, it's hard to measure these things over time as far as I understand it. But like, you know, the re the reporting of... um Things like anxiety and depression has skyrocketed. The number of people on antidepressants has doubled between 2008 and 2018. And part, you know, there are these are all complex issues, and I don't want to pretend they're not. And you know, apparently, part, like part of the reason that the number of um, the number of uh, antidepressants prescribed soar. I mean, because that's insane, like doubling in in ten years. Part of the reason for that may be to do with prescribing. Um, orthodoxy is changing and that you know the like new new reports kind of suggesting that keeping on pe people on ssris for longer is actually more effective so you know there the, let's, let's not pretend these things are simple but the broad trends are clearly that you know um in the the far from bringing us individual freedom and happiness yeah um all of the trends have pointed have have led towards yeah, the in, as Mark Fisher put it, the interiorization, like the internalization of the economic inequalities, the precarity of the private rented market, the precarity mm. of the job market, the landing of young people with debt from you know the moment that they begin a degree uh, if they choose to mm -hmm. do that, and the fact that you know you have a, a generation of young people, young adults, and, and indeed those younger than them, Gen Z people, who are go likely to be worse off than their parents for the first time in history. Like that mm. is, you know, a staggering thing, and it's something that mm -hmm. that neoliberal culture that sort of gives the lie to that sort of dream of what neoliberalism ought to be doing according to its own rhetoric, mm. as described by Georges Monbiot there. Yes. When we put our faith in the market, however we kind of conceptualise that, so like parts of the private sector, when we put our faith in it, basically that sector has two aims, right? Make money and show growth. And 
we are building castles made of absolute sand. <laughs> we are making, making, we are building castles made of sand when we think that putting our faith in these markets will do anything to help or restore or or even or even that these are decent ways of governing our society. So as you mentioned like we have students that are saddled with debt, we have big banks that are operating like casinos and that led to like the financial crash and then there's a decision to bail out the banks with no consequences for the millions of like lives, livelihoods, jobs and homes that were lost globally and we're told that there's nothing we can do about it more people are precarious less people can afford homes but you know there's also things like the climate so we're looking we're constantly terrified about the ways in which the environment is changing so people see these wildfires in australia and really freak out but then there's it seems like there's very little that we can do and all these all these things seem like different issues but they're actually all so interlinked and I, like again it's like this you know to go back to the meme of the lefty pointing at the rain cloud going is it because of neoliberalism? I mean, I, I think you could probably make a case that it was. Yeah, it really is, though. <laughs> like, you, I mean, you could argue, if were we more socialist, would these things maybe not exist? But they are definitely exacerbated by free markets that just thrive off competition. Yeah, or don't thrive. Well, I mean, the inequality thrives off the competition. Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, as the pandemic has proved, you know, take a quick Google and look at what the world's richest 0.1% have, uh, like how their finances have been hit by the pandemic. They haven't. They have massively increased their wealth at a time when millions of people around the world are losing their jobs and will lose their jobs. And, you know, the the social and, mm. and indeed mental health consequences of that are, I mean, God knows what the mental health consequences of the pandemic are going to be, but we are going to need a more robust NHS to deal with them than we currently have by some distance. And actually on, the, on that point, I just want to sort of get in ahead of what I could imagine as a possible criticism of of, our, of, of the, some of the links we're making here in the sense that is it the Labour Party's fault that that mental health funding that you know our mental health services are massively struggling and they are massively struggling like just just to just to give to, some data to that there's there was a survey in the BBC in 2019 the end of 2019 which found that loads of targets were being missed in terms of patients. Patients were getting their first appointment, basically, if they needed a mental health referral on time. That target was being met. But then they were frequently, one in six patients were having to wait three months, over three months before their second appointment, during which time, you know, a number of people attempted suicide, and I'm sure some succeeded. There was another report from 2018, which said that 23% of NHS activity is taken up with mental illness, but 11 but they get 11 percent of the funding for that mm. like anecdotally i can also say that friends have had to wait agonizing amounts of time and, and try and desperately scrabble around for any money that they can find to try and get a private therapist and often fail to do so because of some of the same political and economic problems that we're talking about before hundreds of people around the country with very very like serious crisis level mental health problems are sent outside of their area because the beds are full like that like literally hundreds um every every single year Mm. and you know oh so is this labor's fault well it's a question that i've sort of long been a bit unsure on the extent to which the part privatization of the nhs is just a coalition thing um, but I have done a bit, a bit of reading about it. Finally, the problem with some of this stuff is it's quite boring, and it should it fucking shouldn't be because it's so important. Yeah. But, um, like you know, the funding and the bureaucracy of the NHS is not it's not something that's um, like we all care about the NHS a great deal. I think it's fair to say we've seen evidence of that in the last year, like never before. Uh, you can still see it in the windows of everybody's you know as you as you go on your government constitutional walk. Uh, and it's also it's also worth saying that the NHS, it, it, its complexity is partly because of its size. It's the largest employer in Europe. It has 1.3 million employees. And it's in its creation, its foundation, if you don't know about the sort of history in the late 1940s, when the welfare state in Britain was created, ultimately, by the Labour Party, by Attlee's government, against the, you know, express kind of campaigning and all of the might of the Conservative Party and private, the private healthcare industries at the time, their equivalents in the US are the ones shooting down Bernie Sanders' campaign because, you know, the insu- the health insurance companies over there just absolutely could not stand it because it's socialist. It's a fundamentally socialist idea. Like, if you look at sort of figures of, you know, do you support the NHS? Do you think it's a good idea? 
conservative voters, it will be, I'm sure it's 80% plus as well. Like it's not, it's something that transcends political divides and yet it is a socialist thing. And obviously the conservatives have had to come around to that and mm. they have to wave a little fucking Union Jack with the words NH- with the letters NHS written on it as well, even though they, they were ostensibly against it. Mm. But the partial privatisation of this unalloyed good thing did begin with New Labour. Uh, I'm sad to say New Labour also, it bears, it bears saying, massively injected money into it. They, which they it fucking needed in 1997. The Conservatives had been underfunding it and it was in a really hobbled state in 1997. It was a key part of Tony Blair's campaign in 97 to, that only Labour could save the NHS. And that was an identification between the party and the institution that really fucking, you know, worked, really, really, you know, mm. helped help Blair sort of achieve that insanely big majority in 1997. And they started immediately injecting billions of pounds into it and reforming it. But it was New Labour, which then in, I think, 2003, began to offer parts of the NHS out for tender. Uh, so if you have a new mm. new bit of the NHS is created, it has to go out for tender for bidding. Uh, and they introduced more internal competition as well. And they basically provided the groundwork for that sort of part privatisation, which was accelerated under David Cameron's government in the 2012 uh, Health and Social Care Act. So we are now in a situation where, for example, in 2013, Jeremy Hunt, the health minister under the under David Cameron, sold the NHS's blood plasma collection services for two hundred million pounds to the controversial U.S. private equity firm Bain Capital. And I'm just gonna I'm just gonna spell out what that that means. The Tories literally sold our blood to a Batman villain. <laughs> I mean, okay, not literally. The relationship between the fictional character Bane and Bane Capsule is unproven. But, you know, I'm just going to say there might be a connection there. Come on, there are no, there are no coincidences in this world, surely. <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah, no, they're, obvious, they're obviously connected. But, you know, like the, I think it's, it is hard to measure the health and even the funding of the NHS in some ways because it is such a complex bureaucracy. But we can all say from our own experiences sort of what our sense of the NHS is. And mine is that wait times, that uh, efficiency, that coherence and the kind of the ways in which different parts of the NHS talk to one another when you need a referral are definitely worse than they were. Like I think the GP, Mm. my experience of GP surgeries, and I know this is true of some of my friends and family as well, um, is that, you know, it's, I think it's quite a common thing. This is me projecting over to but I think it's quite a common thing to say, I love the NHS, would defend the NHS more than, you know, it's one of the most loved institutions in this country and for a very good reason, but it is a bit fucked. It's, you know, like it is, yeah. it, is it struggles and all the people who work in it that you meet are almost uniformly amazing, amazing individuals, underpaid and overworked. And they have to deal with the, the consequences of those cuts and, and, that, and that part privatisation. Yeah. Uh, what I would say as well is that what's so frustrating about it is that it's such a, and I hesitate to use this term, but I think it's quite apt. Ooh. It is a postcode lottery yeah. often in the ways in which you can navigate some of the services that are provided because there is an interlinked relationship between particular boroughs and the, the services mm-hmm. that are offered by the NHS. So, for example, I know that my borough, which is Camden, Camden and Islington have an exceptional, because Camden is such a rich borough, it has a, it has invested a lot of money into things like mental health services. So the ability to get a referral is like way quicker than a lot of like, I mean, a lot of other and a lot poorer boroughs. So I've like heard of friends who it's taken up to a year and a half to get something like yeah. CBT. Outrageous. Outrageous. Considering mm-hmm. considering that CBT is so well known about and uh, within the NHS, it's you know it's something that the NHS champions quite a lot. A proactive way to alleviate mental health conditions or to at least approach mental health conditions. Some people are waiting a year and a half, but in the borough of Camden, you might wait like six months. But I think one of the things that's so challenging is that you start off on one service and then they assess what kind of services you might need, and then uh, you move on to another service and then they assess 
accessible services you might need. And then they're like, oh, no, we can't help you here. Go on to this service. So you end up going around the houses. Oh, yeah. Endless assessments. Yeah, endless, endless. And it's a little bit like kind of Kafkaesque, you know, because you're like, I've been doing this for so long. I don't know. I would also <laughs> say that navigating the vast, complex, often not very well joined up bureaucracy that is the NHS, in particular, it's mental health stuff. Mm. Again, like people close to me, the experience has been that being a pushy, confident, university-educated, white middle-class person has given given you has helped that has helped my sort of friends like get what they need and deserve and um, the, the the treatment that they mm. require eventually. But it's been so dispiriting so often that you we I've cut me and my you know me and these friends have talked about like you come away from it with an experience of like if I did not have that fucking bullshiness mm. and that confidence and that sort of middle class assertiveness then you know you you just end up really worrying about what somebody who for whom English is a second language and who does not have that high expectation of what the NHS should be doing for you just give up mm. like sooner when, because there are so many points at which you want to give up because you are exasperated with not getting the treatment that you need and it's of course it's not because of you know bad individuals you know screwing mm. you over in it's it's because it's because our healthcare system has been pecked away at and yeah the phrase death by a thousand cuts sort of mm. seems appropriate here and actually, in, in, in to tie this stuff back into self-care and sort of colouring in and mindfulness apps and so forth, I, I think some of our listeners may remember this, although it's a, it's, it's a Matt Hancock of a different time. But in November 2018, there was a bit of a mini sort of scandal and discussion around what's called social prescribing. So instead of medication or therapy, or in addition to it, perhaps, so that's sort of the issue... Uh, Matt Hancock said, so the BBC headline in this November 2018 article was, GPs should prescribe concerts and (laughs) mixtapes. And the story reads, yeah, that's right. I mean, you haven't heard my mixtapes, or indeed indeed Matt Hancock's, which I believe are packed with skepticism. Yeah, I'm just going to read a bit from the article for, for us here. Doctors should prescribe song playlists as well as medication, the health secretary has said. Patients with mental health conditions could be given dancing and music classes under new social prescribing plans. Matt Hancock has criticised the reliance of treating long-term illnesses with drugs and said culture therapy could save the NHS money. Oh, God. There's a fucking lot to unpack there. But um, before we do, because, you know, like, the response to that is not, no, give everybody drugs all the time. There are valid critiques of medicalization uh, of, of some sort of health conditions. But anyway... Let me move on and just quickly quote what the the chief executive of Mind, the aforementioned mental health charity, said. He said, local services have been subject to substantial cuts over the past decade. This prevention strategy must be matched with long-term investment. We want to see it becoming a reality and making a real difference to people's everyday lives. Mr. Farmer also said it was important that social prescribing isn't seen as a replacement for other treatments. He said, quote, we want self-care techniques to be seen as complementary to rather than as a substitute for mental health services such as counselling or cognitive behavioural therapy. Now, you know, what the quote unquote the right answer is, is not something that, you know, I think we're particularly qualified to answer in terms of, you know, we're, we're not sort of experts in sort of like mental health crises as a public health issue, but can definitely see that what a conservative who's into cost cutting is trying to do there and it's like it's like no he's not saying this is a great extra idea to do some coloring in or mindfulness or make or or make or make a mixtape <laughs> already clear who's making the mixtape is it your gp i'm guessing not <laughs> my gp would make a banging mixtape but she'd be great is that yeah. right okay fair, fair play fair play i'm thinking of the i'm thinking of some of the medical students i've met in my time and they do not strike me as people that would make a banging mixtape you know um <laughs> people who play too much rugby to like good music um but yeah you know i think i think you know in case it needs saying we're not against coloring in well i'm not anyway for if people want to do that that's fine i'm sure it is quite calming i've done i've done some mindfulness i will even say and it's 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 nice you know it's it's it it's I I find it helps sort of physical health. Like it helps to understand exactly how, you know, each muscle is feeling each time is is good for your sort of fitness and stuff. But 
That's not the fucking point. <laughs> but the thing is, you're not against colouring just as you're not against puzzles and you're not against watching watching the same TV <laughs> I show. I am against puzzles. <laughs> the same TV. You know, like, I think we have mentioned this on another podcast episode uh, where, you know, I, I was kind of telling you that I didn't realise why I watched the same series over and over again or why I, like, watched the same episodes of Poirot even though I've seen them before and there's no surprises. Hmm. Or just watch Poirot in general because there's no surprises. Yeah. And it's because the act of watching something like that is like really good for alleviating like you know anxiety in those moments so you know if you're feeling a little bit anxious you Mm -hmm. just stick on the sopranos or you stick on like whatever and i it's not that we're saying that these things or these methods of alleviating symptoms of anxiety are inherently wrong and are are inherently misplaced are inherently something to be critiqued but i think there is Mm -hmm. something that does need to be interrogated here and that's all we're doing we're interrogating which is we have to analyse the connections between our wider political lives and the political sector. That needs to be interrogated because often the, the conversations happen in a way that are completely detached. So it's not that, you know, you're depressed because you're losing your house and you have no job like stability and you've been on a zero hours contract and that's why you're feeling sad. It's just like, oh, do you know what have you thought about this puzzle? And I do think mm. this is something that needs to be interrogated. Yeah. I will never apologize for banging on this drum. Like I, I was listening to the radio the other day. I think it was like woman's hour and someone was talking about oh I went to the council for something or other and they were really rubbish and I got passed around and I saw like 10 different people and it's like yeah of course you saw 10 different people because like a lot of councils especially the poorer councils are so strapped for cash that it's really hard for anyone to navigate those systems they've got temporary workers because the people that are employed by councils in a bid to save money are Mm self-employed like zero hours contract members of staff these are the reasons why people's uh, mental health services are failing them often is Mm -hmm. because there are not there are not uh safety barriers in place and this is important these are things that we need to talk about because of 10 years of incredibly aggressive cuts to local council budgets since 2010 i mean is 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 basically right and i think i think people often don't realize this and i think actually this is probably a really under discussed and underplayed part of um the Brexit vote even and the 2019 election result and just mm. general dissatisfaction and unhappiness in this country uh, with, with with sort of, mm. you know, the, the, the sense that like, yeah, services are not performing in the way they should. The fact that, you know, that, that this is not, not as successful a country in how it operates as it used to be like that's yeah, like that's, it yeah, seems like a, yeah. almost too basic a way of putting it but I think it's true yeah is because local council budgets have been and it's actually an ingenious political strategy that the conservatives have yeah executed blame the council fucking pissed off and mm. and lashing out as a result of it and and you know becoming more atomized and hating their neighbors more is because it's because things aren't functioning properly things yeah. aren't functioning properly because the local council which is often a labor council and those cuts did go disproportionately to labor councils yeah um as well um which which you know means that there's a there's a real association there for mm. a lot of people with the labor party and the bins haven't been collected on time mm. the after school program that my kids went to the local youth club shut down the fact that you can't use the parks in the summer because there's some mm. like obnoxious like um rock festival going on that costs 60 quid to get into and everyone's pissing in my front garden mm. you know all of these things come back to the cuts that were handed down to local councils under the conservatives and the, indeed the coalition government 2010 to 2015 um, and that's had its that's had its effect on, on mental health provision as well you know a lot of this stuff comes through the nhs but not all of it does you know some of yeah. it some of it, some of it is 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 rooted through like one-off local schemes that um, you know might be provided at you know a, lo- a local yeah like a local community centre for example and if that community centre is shut down as well you know this is what Mark Fisher was talking about um, with regards to the public broadly yeah. speaking yeah you know? albeit he was writing in 2012 and austerity was just getting going at that point mm. but he identified a problem that has actually only grown since really yeah. you know the the, de- the desecration of the public sphere ultimately individualizes atomizes pushing us pushes us back into our homes which is i know an ironic thing to say in a way mm. after a year in which we've all had to stay in our homes for very social reasons you know because we don't want to kill our neighbors by breathing on them but that's something that really really has to change when we're allowed outdoors safely covid wise <laughs> well yeah do you know what because i'm like 
as as with everyone this year. Um, I've been doing loads of walking, um, but it's something that I've always thought about. And I'm not sure when this happened, but I live quite near Suicide Bridge, which kind of just goes over the Archway Road. And um, oh God, I've heard about yeah, that. Yeah, and that's, and horrible. that's I was, horrible. I didn't know that's what it's known as, is it? Yeah, and I was walking yeah, along God. it the other day. And I remember, I don't know how many years ago, I'm not sure when this happened, but I remember walking along it about, I don't know, maybe like five five maybe six years ago and there's always been a fairly high barrier with these like Mm. big spikes like as in like anti-climb spikes so you can't get over the top they have now got not just that not just that one barrier they have now introduced a secondary fence which is almost like i don't know how much taller Mm. it is but is taller even than the first and i was just walking on this bridge and i was um, it's actually it makes me quite upset to think that we live in a place We live in a society where rather than addressing the reasons why so many people want to jump off a bridge, we just put in Mm -hmm. another fence. Like, (laughs) it just, like, I'm just walking along it and it just, like, it, it really, really... It really hits you when you see, and it and it doesn't feel like it was that long ago that they introduced that. Although, you know, I don't know, maybe my, like, timings are off. And the ways that we can think of this is almost like it is a very material reflection of neoliberalism. It's something that makes what has happened or what has been allowed mm. to thrive under neoliberalism clear, you know? Yeah. It's not just the kind of abstract art. Like, for me, the fact that they have to introduce a secondary barrier there, that is what years of competition, yeah. years of, like, destroying unions, years of, like, individualism yeah. or, like, kind of putting the impetus on individual like individual mental health has done that's what it's done I'm very you're absolutely right and I'm very excited now because you've sort of keyed into something that I find completely fascinating that is not about objects per se but is about physical space and that is how neoliberalism is spatialized like what is the physical material logic of neoliberalism it is walls it's barriers Mm. it's borders Mm. like you know that that and that is something that you see increasingly in the modern neoliberal city as well mm-hmm. like a gated community for example that yeah that is your physical expression of neoliberalism yeah you know, a, a gated community for the very wealthy or like anti-homeless architecture yeah another perfect example yeah aggressively anti-social you know aspect of the built environment yeah yeah i mean yeah yeah this is i feel like we could do a whole other episode on that, on that alone but it's but you're so right like i think the building of that extra layered mm. the wall on the so-called suicide bridge in archway apart from being incredibly grim like yeah that's yeah there's your physical manifestation of of neoliberalism you know of 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 cuts to mental health services of a lack of a social fabric of, of and a public realm and a mm. communitarian collectivist spirit of of solidarity ultimately yeah and, you know yeah. i do do think we should try and end this episode on a positive note and um and and I guess the way I would suggest doing that is to just remind everybody that the opposite of that interiorization and individualization of stress is and anxiety and depression is solidarity. It's reaching out to people. Yeah, for sure. And uh, maybe we can play Pete Seeger's Solidarity Forever over the outro. <laughs> <laughs> and don't forget that if you're on your own and you're struggling, you are not alone. There are a multitude of mental health charities and support groups, Samaritans, Mental Health UK, Mind, who can all help or reach out to us or to those closest to you. You really are not alone. Okay, everyone, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Cursed Objects. I've been Dr. Kasha T. And I have been and shall remain Dan Hancock. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. Um, but yes do do check out um our patreon please because you know we need money to buy colored pencils and um and if you can't afford to do that then because of 40 years of neoliberalism then we totally understand um uh, but you it'd be great if you could like give us a review on itunes is that what people do i don't know i'm not an apple person give us a (laughs) review somewhere tell a friend uh tweet about it Share us on Instagram. We are Cursed Objects on all of your favourite platforms, apart from Clubhouse, because nobody uses that. Thank you. Bye. Bye.